2: Welcome, Ask the Lawyer, with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello. And if you haven't listened to the show before, the show is usually in two parts, not necessarily equal parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation mm-hmm. to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally. Avoiding going through court, that's avoiding probate. And as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, we had a number of seminars this past week, and we're going to have some more seminars in May. We're going to be in Manhattan at the Three West Club and Staten Island at Pacelli's Restaurant. But if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, give us a call now at 1-866-970-9622. If you want to email us a question, we, I don't think we have any email questions for this week, but if you want to email us a question, email us a question at answer at connersandsullivan, spelled out.com. answer at Connors And, you know, if we can't get to your question on the air, we'll respond to it in writing or whatever. But if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, again, call them in now, 1 866 now yesterday uh we were doing a seminar in Bayside and our friend Patrick Fauci and his wife Joan stepped by and they gave me some news that Patrick Wayne was elected to the Cowboy Hall of Fame. Right. And you know, that that's a little bit of a charge. And Patrick should be coming into uh, the New York area in October, so maybe we'll have some kind of event for him, whatever, to help his John Wayne Cancer Institute. That'd be and, great. And they do great work. To him. They're good people and they do good work.
3: Who else got Who else got elected?
2: Well, my understanding, Alan Ladd, and I know you're not an Alan Ladd fan.
3: No, not he's fine, but it, I actually think that's long overdue. If anybody remembers Shane,
2: not only Shane, I like Whispering Smith better.
3: Okay, okay.
2: You know, I, I thought that was a better film, and uh, you know, there was a, a TV series. Audie Murphy played Whispering Smith, and. Uh, it wasn't that good, and I was very disappointed when we I saw, saw a couple somewhere. of those episodes on TV right. a couple of months ago or whatever. You know, I can read, James, I can read partially. Do we have a phone number in there? Okay. So.
3: What were some of the the Pat Wayne movies? People may well, obviously he was in it. The Searchers. Right.
2: Uh, he was in The Alamo. He was in Big Jake, which I know your father used to like that movie.
3: Every night. Every night almost. He'd watch the news and then, well, you want to watch Big Jake?
2: <laughs> and, of course, he was in Cheyenne Autumn. And that was, you know, it wasn't one of John Ford's best, but still better than most films that came out that year.
3: Oh, that's a great movie.
2: Yeah. And McClintock. Mm-hmm. He was in McClintock. And, of course, non westons He was in uh, Mr. Roberts and Long Gray Line. Okay, And he got his first, and the quiet man, he got his fir- first uh, screen kiss from Maureen O'Hara. <laughs> okay, we, we do have a call from New Jersey. I'm s- I can't read the name. Okay. What's your question?
4: Hi, Mike. Hi. Um, my question is this. Um, my husband and I uh, last year had a power of attorney, advanced directive, living will, uh, last will and testament, and a revocable trust. Um, you know, with the poor over will completed at uh, right. the end of last year. And just recently, last week, um, unfortunately, my husband has passed away. I'm sorry. And now I have to title uh, my assets to the trust. But my question is this as far as the existing bank accounts go, right now I have um, a money market account that was in the name of both my husband and I. And what I want to know is to avoid probate, if I um, take that money market and close it out and open up uh, another money market in my name, payable on death to one of my children, will that avoid probate and does that, um, you know, can I do that?
2: You certainly can do that and it will avoid probate. The only reason you might want to use the trust is to try to keep it even if that's your goal among your children. You know, because sometimes it's not easy to get all the accounts. If you want everything to be equal, it's, it's not that easy to get all the accounts,
4: you right, know, separated. Right, that's I want it equal. But unfortunately, um, um, I have two children. Yes. And one, I favor one more um, because okay. of, of different family reasons.
2: No, I'm sure you and, have your uh, reasons.
4: Excuse me.
2: No, I'm sure you have your reasons. In that no, case, I, it w- I it would... want to
4: make sure that one particular child is uh, taken care of uh, because she can't provide for herself as as well as um, her her uh, other uh, her other brother. So you know, I just want to make sure that that you know that's within my legal right to do.
2: No, you can pretty much do whatever you want as far as a will is concerned. And okay,
4: is there... go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, is there a, a one advantage over another as opposed to having um, having it uh, in both our names, uh, myself and my daughter, or is it better off just having the account in my name but payable on death to my daughter?
2: They both, they both will avoid probate, whether it's joint or payable on death. The difference okay. is if it's a joint account, you're giving your daughter access to the account, which may be fine, okay. but... Just keep that in mind. You're giving your daughter access to the account today if it's a joint account. And if you have a pour-over will, the trust says it leaves all to the daughter that you want to leave it to?
4: Um, no. Well, no, there, no, it doesn't. Um, there was originally, uh, when my husband uh, was alive, we had discussed this, and we're giving them percentages of um, any assets.
2: Okay. So I would I would take a look at your will then and make sure that it conforms with your wishes because – You know, one of the things, especially if there's a possibility somebody may contest your will, you may want to state flat out what you want in your will, you know, percentages, two-thirds to your one child, one-third to the other, whatever you want to do. But I I like to do that.
4: there are are other assets, Mm -hmm. um, but this is just the one uh, different, uh, you know, I just want to put this one particular account payable on death, and there are other assets that will be, you know, okay, for the split that my husband and I had both agreed on uh, prior to his passing.
2: Okay. Is your ha- Do you own a house? Yes. Okay. Well, the house should be in a trust because the only effective way to avoid probate on the house is through a trust yes, agreement.
4: That, that actually was just completed just okay. a few days before uh, his passing. So the house is already in, you know, it's in the name of the trust.
1: Right.
4: You know, it was just a matter of, you know, now we were going to start moving the bank accounts.
2: Okay, and then you may want to just check on taxes. you know New Jersey's a little bit stricter than most states on taxes, and in some cases, you have nine months to do what we call a disclaimer if you're over two million dollars in New Jersey.
4: Right, right. Mm-hmm. okay, and um, I think that was that was basically you know everything that I had wanted to uh, to ask about that. I just wanted to make sure I was in my you know my legal rights to um, you know to do that.
2: Yeah. Ordinarily, if was a revocable trust and the surviving spouse can change it, and, of course, the assets were in the trust anyway, so they're not controlled, you know, pretty much you can do whatever you want to do. I mean, there's no restriction on how you want to distribute your assets after you're gone. And whether you have uh-huh. an asset in the trust or payable on death or in trust for or transfer on death, different banks, different organizations use different terminology, they all, uh-huh. will, avoid pro- they all will avoid probate. Uh-huh. Well, let
4: me ask you this one last question, then. Sure. um Was... You know, this is, you know, you would know this, I don't, but if right now I only, okay, the house is in the trust, and I also have some United States savings bonds uh, that are not due until uh, the next couple of years, and, of course, the bank accounts. Now, if, I'm not going to do this, but I'm just saying if I did choose to change the title on the, um, the names on the, the, um, the bonds, to a payable on death account, and I changed my bank accounts to payable on death and the house has already been given to one child um, solely. What would be the purpose of having a trust?
2: Well you want the real estate you want the real estate to go through a trust to avoid probate uh-huh. payable on death in trust for transfer on death. All those designations will avoid probate, but the only effective way to avoid probate on real estate, especially tax-wise, to get it out Uh tax-free is through a trust agreement. So the trust may only cover the house. In a lot of cases, that's what it is.
4: Okay. And then things as far as, like, the IRA account and the life insurance, um, that is also out of the trust?
2: Right. Uh, Especially in IRA, ordinarily you you would never put assets of an IRA retirement account into a trust because that would be a taxable event. You could uh-huh. name, if if the child were not capable of taking care of themselves, you might have a trust as beneficiary. But ordinarily, uh-huh. IRA accounts, you have the, the kids or whomever as beneficiaries, insurance policies, annuities. You have the kids as beneficiaries, however you want to divide it, and that will avoid probate. Again, the the trust is for the house primarily.
4: I see. Okay, well, you've made that crystal clear, and I do appreciate your time. Thank you okay, very much. Okay, good luck.
2: Sorry about your husband again. All right. So, I mean, that's what we spend a lot of time in the seminars. And, you know, here's one miss conception, you know, like a revocable trust. Some people trying to sell revocable trust, but, you know, you really don't need a revocable trust for bank accounts, annuities, insurance policies, IRAs, or whatever you can name beneficiaries. Now, there's always an exception to every rule, and of course, one of the exceptions, you know, let's say you're going to name 15 nephews and nieces in your plan. Well, you can't go around putting all your bank accounts and try to divide them 15 ways or whatever. So if you put it in the trust, you can have, let's say, 15 beneficiaries. You can change the percentages among your beneficiaries, and you have one of your nephews and nieces or a combination of them be in charge. So there are reasons for trust. And, of course, if you're going to leave assets to somebody who's under the age of 18, you want to do a trust agreement because you don't want to leave a, you know, a 15-year-old a million dollars. I don't even think you want to leave a 15-year-old $100,000. One, it could get administered by court. Two, if you want to make any withdrawals, you may have to go through court. And three, do you want a minor child when he he or she turns 18 to get the asset on their 18th birthday? Okay, now tonight we're going to be talking a little bit of baseball again. We tend to do that in April. And we're going to be talking about Casey Stengel. And we have Marty Appel, who used to be the uh, public relations director for the Yankees, and he's written a book about Casey Stengel. But, you know, I thought just to add it, I'd get one of the ball players who played with Casey Stengel. So we contacted Ken McKenzie, and he's going to give his thoughts on Casey Stengel. Now, we're going to have a much longer interview with Ken McKenzie, you know, later in the baseball season. And Ken McKenzie was an interesting uh, player. He was born in Canada, uh, har- you know, Ivy League graduate, very interesting man. And we're going to be talking to Ken McKenzie in a couple of minutes.
0: I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a a burden to me.
3: I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time. gradually quit going.
5: No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with.
0: You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there.
5: We are enslaved to power, or to greed, or to wealth, or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home.
6: Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it.
4: There's peace in our home that we
5: didn't have before.
0: You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, We invite you to take another look.
5: Visit catholicscomehome.org today. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call 888-943-2646.
0: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors.
2: Okay, well, welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Our subject tonight is Casey Stengel. And Casey Stengel, you know, is one of the favorite characters in baseball. He's one of the few guys, the only guy, I should say, who wore the uniform of the Brooklyn Dodgers, the New York Giants, the New York Yankees, and the New York Mets. And Marty Appel, public relations, former public relations director for the Yankees, has a book out about Casey Stengel. But I thought as a prelude to it, we would get one of the players who played for Casey Stengel in 1962 Mets. There weren't too many pitchers. In fact, there was only one who had a winning record for the 1962 Mets, and his name was Ken McKenzie. And he was a Harvard graduate, hockey player, marginal major league pitcher who had to scratch out his five years, had to scratch and fight to get his five years for his pension. But he had some thoughts about Casey Stengel, and we talked to him a few weeks ago. And I understand you wrote an article for the Yale review about Casey, so you want to give us a little? I did,
1: sure. Uh, If I could read you a piece of it, it'll take, I hope hope your show lasts this long, and it's about remembering Casey. Casey Stengel was famous for his flamboyance and double talk, but tucked away in the folds of that double talk were maxims that ended arguments and made lots of sense when you thought about it. He could make a living, Casey would say, if you asked him whether a player was any good. Or you could look it up if you were doubtful about a tale. The Baseball Encyclopedia, the book, has most of the facts about Casey if you want to look them up. But they, <clears throat> but that won't even begin to tell you about him. Nor will all the reams of copy written by sports writers who were drawn to him because he always had a story for the box score or the late edition because it could keep you dry in a rain delay. There were subtle undertones there, lost in the highlights of public legend. And to understand those things, you had to know how Casey related to his players. For instance, in 1962, the year of the amazing Mets, when we lost 120 games and won 40, a lot of players came through town. The doors opened that spring for a lot of us who either hadn't much of a chance or were looking for a second chance, or a last chance, or an outside chance. If there was one player in camp whom Casey wanted to make the ball club, it was Johnny Cux. You could tell by the way Casey referred to him and used him that he wanted Cucks to do well, that he hoped Cucks would do well. Pure prejudice, it seemed, but nobody minded because Johnny Cux was the kind of guy that everybody hoped would do well. He was an exception for us all, and even when there were only 10 places on the club for pitchers and 33 of us scratching for those places, we still pulled for Johnny Cux. Why Cux? What was he to Casey? Well, you can look that up. Here's a guy who hadn't pitched in the big leagues at all the past year, and the year before that had posted a record of 4-10 and with a last-place team. But you go back to 1956, and the book says that he was 18-9 and nine with the Yankees. And of all the teams and all the years that Casey managed, I'm willing to bet that the 1956 Yankees would be the one that Casey would remember most fondly. It was a team he could manage. If you ask him why he let off a batting order with a player who hit 25 home runs, he'd respond with something like, what's wrong with being a run ahead? The Yankees won the pennant in the World Series that season without a 20-game winner. Now, not having a 20-game winner on a team that won 97 games was very unusual in those days. The Cleveland Indians had three, early win, Jim Lemon, Herb score, and they finished second. So here's Cux, 23 years old, on a team that can really crush the ball. Casey nursed him to an 18-9 record, and even though he had a very mediocre 385 earned run average, I'm not trying to take anything away from Johnny Cux. My point is simply that there were a lot of good pitchers on that team club. Whitey Ford, Don Larson, Tom Sturdivant, Bob Turley, and Casey was the one calling the shots. The Dodgers won the National League pennant, and their lineup read like murderer's row. Consider Gil Hodges, Junior Gilliam, Pee Wee Reese, Randy Jackson, Carl Farrillo, Duke Snyder, Sandy Amoros, Roy Campanella, and an aging Jackie Robinson providing reserve strength and inspiration, Don Newcomb won 27 games. Ford had won 19 during the season, and you expect him to start the series. But when he gives up five runs in three innings, would you relieve him with a pitcher who had won 18 for you? Of course not. But Casey does. Cox pitches two fair innings, and the Yankees go on to lose 6-3. Two days later, they lose the second game, this time by a score of 13-3. Larson and Newcomb last an inning and two-thirds each. Looks like a hitter's series. Ford comes back with three days rest and wins the third game for the Yankees. Tom Sturdivant does the job in the game four and evens the series. No cucks. Don Larson pitches his celebrated perfect game in Game Five, and the Yankees are one up. But Brooklyn gets four hits and one run off Bob Turley the next day in Game Six, and but Clem Labine pitches a shutout, and the series is even at three games apiece. Still no cucks. Now it's October 10, World Series time. Ford is your ace, and he's had four days' rest. You'd start him again, right? Wrong. Now finally it's Cucks. He'd given up three hits and a run in two innings a week ago. But today he holds the Dodgers to three hits, no runs, and the Yankees dispense with Newcomb in three innings. Scour and Caps it, caps it with a grand slam home run in the seventh. The Yankees won again in 57 and 58. But Cux was eight and ten, and eight and eight. In '59, he was traded to the, with Tom Sturdivant and Jerry Lumpy to Kansas City for Hector Lopez and Ralph Terry. For, for Hector Lopez and Ralph Terry. When you look up, look at that deal. You almost have to assume that he was a throw-in, and that Casey just wanted to get rid of him forever. But if you think that way, then you don't know the Casey I knew. A lot like an elephant. Wrinkles, big years, long memory. Casey remembered 1956 and the, the final game of the series. Oh, sure, he remembered the others, other years, too. But playing the Brooklyn Dodgers in '56 was special. And a young Johnny Cucks had done the job for the old man when he'd handed him the ball, when it really counted. So an old Johnny Cucks got a bit of a reprieve in the spring of '62, Like some of the others there that spring, he didn't stay long enough to appear in the record book. This was the last depot on the track to retirement. If Casey had been as heartless and impersonal as some players accused him of being, neither Cux nor I nor any of the others would, would have had ever had that chance. He gave it to us. And with a chance, who knows, maybe you could win a game or two, even make a living. And if you can make a living doing it, You've got to be pretty good. That was Casey's point.
5: Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life.
0: For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more.
3: Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars.
0: On Monday, May 15th at Bocelli's Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Grasmere, Staten Island, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., and at the 3 West Club. 3 West 51st Street in Midtown Manhattan on Tuesday, May 16th at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m.
3: Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment.
0: Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors & Sullivan. 718-238-6500 or go to ConnorsAndSullivan.com
3: Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors & Sullivan free seminar. For more information call 718-238-6500 or go to ConnorsAndSullivan.com
0: Connors & Sullivan Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors.
2: Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Right now with me is Marty Appel, who's written a great book about one of the great personalities in baseball history, Casey Stengel. How are you doing today?
6: I'm doing good, Mike. Thanks for having me on.
2: Casey Stengel, again, one of the great personalities in baseball history. Why did you decide to write a book about him? I mean, he's dead for years now.
6: Well, there was a bestseller on Cleopatra recently, so <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't a ba- that wasn't a boundary. But actually, Major League Baseball Network, when they came on the air in two thousand and nine, used to do these lists of superlatives, like the best baseball movie ever, and things like that. And they named Casey Stengel as the greatest character in the history of baseball, more than Babe Ruth, Yogi Berra, Dizzy Dean. So my editor at Doubleday conferred with me and said, maybe it's time for a Casey Stengel biography. It's been like 35 years since there was a big book about him. Uh, So we went ahead with it. And I did discover that not too many people under 40 have even heard of Casey Stengel. So that was a challenge, really, to bring him back into the discussion. Um, hopefully, we did that
2: to get to those people under forty. Now, Casey Stengel was the only man who wore the baseball uniform of the Brooklyn Dodgers, the New York Giants, the New York Yankees, and the New York Mets.
6: Yes, the only man so far. I like to say. Well, because, I don't think uh, anybody.
2: Can, I don't think any Brooklyn Dodgers are going to put on Met uniforms or Yankee. You
6: know. No, I'm, I'm still hopeful that they'll see the error of their ways and come back to New York. The Dodgers and the Giants. <laughs> Um,
2: but you then, go into Casey Stengel's early career, and he was a good baseball player, and some people don't realize that.
6: Yeah, he was pretty good. He played 14 years. He was uh, in, on four World Series teams. He hit 284. He wasn't going to go to the Hall of Fame as a player, but he probably would have made a couple of all star teams if they had all star games back then.
2: And even back, you know, in, in 1912, 1916, he was a character even back then.
6: He was. He was. Um, His his nickname, Casey, which came from his hometown of Kansas City, kind of endeared him to the fans when everybody knew Casey at the bat. That was part of uh, American culture back then. And he would do things on the field that would be very fan-friendly. Even once when he came back to Brooklyn with his new Pittsburgh Pirates team, the fans were booing him at Ebbets Field, and so he put a sparrow under his cap. And when he came to bat and the fans booed, He doffed his cap, and the sparrow flew out, and it was a way of him giving the fans the bird, and they loved it. (laughs) Forever after, they cheered Casey in Brooklyn.
2: He had the opportunity to play for two great managers, Wilbur Robinson and uh, later John McGraw.
6: McGraw was especially influential on him. McGraw really was a genius at, at his profession, and Casey used to sit next to John McGraw in the Giants' dugout, and learn so much from him. Sometimes there'd be a play on the field, and Casey would just say out loud, oh, great play. And McGraw would say, no, it wasn't, and I'll tell you why. And Casey would learn so much from that. And McGraw was kind of grooming Casey to be a manager someday. Even in spring training, he won- one year he split up the Giants into two separate divisions and had Casey uh, run the spring training camp at that second division. Casey didn't like that because he thought it was cutting into his chance to be a regular player on the Giants, but it was good experience for him.
2: Now, Casey Stengel had a pretty good World Series one year.
6: Um, He was a good World Series performer, and in 1923, the first year of Yankee Stadium, he hit against the Yankees the first World Series home run ever in Yankee Stadium. Now, as was usually the case with Casey, there was a story with it. It was an inside-the-park home run. And he had an insert in his shoe, a little rubber uh, insert to protect against an injury, which flew out while he was running the bases. Now, he was already thought of as an old man, so he's running the bases, and he's yelling, go, Casey, go, Casey, to himself out loud. He slides home, and he says to the on-deck hitter, I think I lost my shoe. And Hank Gowdy, the on-deck hitter, looks at him and says, well, how many were you wearing, Casey? Because <laughs> he still had he still had two on, but that little rubber insert had flown out. <laughs>
2: now he had another home run in that World Series. Was a little bit controversial.
6: He did, and it, what made it con- it was important, like game winning home run. And what made it controversial, was as he was running the bases, he was like thumbing his nose at the Yankees uh, derisively, and it so upset the Yankees that they went to the commissioner and demanded that Casey be uh, suspended. And the commissioner just said, no, that's just Casey Stengel. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so, but um, he really made his mark in that World Series.
2: Now, then Stengel was traded to Boston, and that was the end of his playing career, and he became a manager. Can you explain how did he become a manager? What started his managerial career?
6: The owner of the Boston team, Judge Emil Fuchs, Uh, also owned the Worcester, Massachusetts minor league team, and he wanted Casey to be a player manager at Worcester. So that ended Casey's major league career, and he sent him to Worcester and thus began a long and not very uh, successful managing career, which eventually caught fire when he went to the Yankees many years later. But his managing days started in Worcester, Massachusetts.
2: So he's, he's managing the minor leagues, and eventually he gets a, a chance to come back to Brooklyn.
6: He was always popular in Brooklyn. Uh, the Dodgers didn't have much money. They weren't going to be able to give him a good ball club to work with. It would be the pattern that would repeat in Boston some years later. Uh, popular player, no money, bad team. And Casey did prove over the course of his career that if you don't have good players, no matter how smart a manager you are, chances are you're not going to do well. Um, <clears throat> so he managed unsuccessfully in Brooklyn, but it was a popular team. Dodger fans were very loyal. Ebbets Field usually got pretty good crowds. Casey lived in the neighborhood. He liked talking to the fans as he walked around the neighborhood. So uh, it was a good stop for him, and it got his feet wet as a major league manager.
2: But eventually he gets fired from Brooklyn.
6: He gets fired with one year to go on his contract, which was so he sat out nineteen thirty seven. 1937. Um, the only time he was out of the game from like 1910 until 1961. But in 37, at the height of the Depression, and Casey and his wife Edna had lost all their money, um... <laughs> he and some other ball players get a tip about investing in an oil well in Texas, and uh, the well comes in. It's still producing money for the Stengel estate to this day, and Case, <clears throat> Casey became a rich man in that one year that he had off when they paid him not to manage.
2: Again, some of the younger people, what number did Casey Stengel wear on his back after that?
6: Um, well, he was famous for number 37 that he wore with both the Yankees and the Mets. And he had that number retired by both of those teams, which is pretty unusual. Back with Brooklyn, like, uh, he was number 31.
2: Okay, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes talking to Marty Appel about his book on Casey Stengel.
0: We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org.
2: That's jwcigiving.org.
5: I have children. How can I protect them if something happens to Will my
3: to assets me? be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property How assets. will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of grandma?
2: We're talking right now to, to Marty Appel about his book on Casey Stengel. So we're right now Casey, 1937. He gets another managing opportunity. What happens then?
6: In 1937, he. Um, I'm sorry, 1937. He goes to Boston after sitting out 37, and there he's managing the low budget Boston Bees, which were the Boston Braves, but that was the name they were going by in those days. And again, not a very good team, not much success there. Finishes 7th, 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 7th. Can't really get into the first division. Um, But in 1943, just before the start of the season, literally just before, uh, he's crossing the street in Kenmore Square in Boston, a very complicated intersection, it's late at night. Uh, there's a <clears throat> World War II blackout in effect, so the streetlights are off. Even headlights were taped on the top to reduce the, uh, the lights. Casey gets hit by a taxi, badly injured, misses three months of the season, is left with a permanent limp. Uh, it looked like he might not live for a while. It certainly looked like he might not walk on his own for a while. But by the summer, he came back, finished the season, and that was the end of his years managing Boston.
2: He goes to manage in the minor leagues, and eventually, obviously, he gets hired by the Yankees. Why did the Yankees hire Casey Stengel? He was a losing manager up to that point.
6: He was not only a losing manager, he had a reputation of being clownish, which was anything but what the lordly Yankees were. The Yankees were all about efficiency and professionalism and, you know, playing the game right. Um, but he had a wonderful relationship with the Yankees general manager, George Weiss, who saw in Casey a baseball mind that was like no other. Casey could see things that other people couldn't see, and Weiss thought Casey Stengel would be very good at this job. Now, most baseball fans, experts, were outraged that the Yankees were hiring this clown to manage the Yankees. But in that first year, 1949, despite more than 70 injuries the team incurred, Casey takes them all the way to the World Championship. Well, that relaxed everybody. Now all of a sudden Casey Stengel was seen as a fine manager, and all he wanted to do was prove that he could win if he had good players. Well, bang, 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 he wins four more to give him five world championships in a row, and his ticket to Cooperstown is punched. Now he's a baseball immortal and one of the great managers of all time.
2: Let me ask you this question, because there's some different opinions about Casey Stengel. Some people think, yes, he was a great manager, he was a brilliant manager with the Yankees. Other people say, well, anybody could have managed the Yankees at that time to world championships.
6: I do hear that a lot, and probably there are other managers, given that array of talent that was on the Yankees, that would have been successful. But you know what? When you win five in a row and you win ten pennants in 12 years and seven world championships, it has something to do with the manager. There's no denying it. Now, he wasn't a player's manager. The players didn't love him. The ones who had played for Joe McCarthy – And then Stengel, like Joe DiMaggio and Tommy Henrik and Phil Rizzuto, preferred McCarthy. The ones on the other end who played for Stengel and then Ralph Houck preferred Ralph Houck. But nobody seemed to have a problem cashing their World Series check every October.
2: Uh, Bringing up, how did Joe DiMaggio and Casey Stengel get along?
6: Uh, Everybody was watching that to see how they would get along. DiMaggio was already the elite player in the game. And Casey was going to establish that he was the boss of the team. That was his assignment. Uh, He put it to the test the first day of spring training in 1949 when he read the new spring training rules for the Yankees. And that included that the players were forbidden to go to the dog track in St. Petersburg at night. Well, That's what Joe DiMaggio did every night. Everybody who knew Joe knew that. So, my gosh, here's a line in the sand. What's going to happen now? And what happened was that DiMaggio went to the track anyway, and when Casey was asked about it, he said, well, I have no firsthand knowledge of that. I wasn't there, so I have no comment. And the crisis passed, and they just sort of agreed to get along as best they could. And it produced three straight world championships those years together. But could you imagine today 2,500 cell phone photos of Joe at the track and the newspaper headlines all saying, what now, Casey?
2: (laughs) That is a very good point. Now, 1954, obviously Cleveland won the, the pennant that year. The Yankees really didn't have a bad year.
6: Actually, they won the most games they ever won under Casey, 103 wins. But it was just Cleveland's year. Cleveland had a terrific team, a fabulous pitching staff. So the Yankees had to settle for second place, but without any embarrassment or disgrace at all.
2: All right, so 54 comes by. Of course, they're back in the World Series in 55, 56, 57, 58. Casey Stengel's there, and, and 59, they don't, they don't win the, the series. Uh, they don't win the pennant, I'm sorry. And in 1960, they lose to Pittsburgh in the World Series.
6: Yes. One of the best World Series ever played. The Yankees really outplayed Pittsburgh in the series, but Bill Mazeroski hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth inning of the seventh game, and the Pirates win, and Casey gets fired a couple of days later. It was really a shock to the sports world.
2: Okay, so he takes the team to the seventh game of the World Series. He's won 10 pennants in 12 years, and he's fired?
6: Yes, and as he said, I'll never make the mistake of being 70 years old again. (laughs) The Yankees uh, used that as the reason. Um, They they said that they're instituting a new retirement age policy, and Casey had reached retirement age, and they were going to make a change and make Ralph Houck the manager. Uh, Casey was bitter about it. He... uh, didn't go back to Yankee Stadium for 10 years for an old-timer's day. Um, And when he went to the Mets two years later, who were just starting as an expansion team, part of it was an opportunity to stick it to the Yankees and get even and win fans and win the hearts of New Yorkers managing the Mets.
2: Why did Casey Stengel take the job with the Mets? I mean, there were other job opportunities for him.
6: He did have an opportunity to manage the Los Angeles Angels, who were just starting out, and the San Francisco Giants, which in their new home, but uh, that had been the team he had played for, the New York Giants. Um, but he passed on those. He was really settling into retirement. But then his friend George Weiss, who was now the president of the Mets, called him and said, We need you, Casey. We need to establish ourselves in New York. You're the man to do this. So at age 72, Casey came out of retirement, went back to New York, and really, really put the Mets on the map. He didn't manage the way he did in New York. He really turned over a lot of that game-day situation stuff to the coaches. But uh, his job, and he recognized it, was public relations, And he did win over the hearts of the writers and through them the hearts of the fans of New York.
2: How would you summarize it? What was Casey's legacy with the Mets?
6: It was in establishing the credibility of the team. The team was bad. Casey was used to that from his early days as a manager. But he knew how to charm the writers. He always used to say, it's important to learn the writers' names more than the players'. (laughs) And um, he just... um, Whether it was appearing on commercials or promos or doing funny interviews, he was on What's My Line and I've Got a Secret and all those big TV shows of the time. And he worked at uh, making the Mets popular to the point where Johnny Carson was starting to do Mets jokes in his opening monologues. And that was what they wanted Casey Stengel for. They wanted the Mets to have be bona fide competition to the Yankees in New York and even today, Casey used to always say the Mets were amazing, and today's newspaper headlines will often say Amazons defeat Cubs six to five or something like that. They still use the word amazing for the Mets.
2: In your research on, on Casey Stengel's life, what is the one thing that impressed you about him that maybe the average fan doesn't doesn't know about Casey Stengel?
6: Well, he was a very smart guy, um, made a lot of money in oil. Uh, His wife's family owned a bank in Glendale, California, and he was a vice president of the bank. Um, He was all baseball, 365. Uh, He had no hobbies, no other interests than baseball. But he also saw the baseball community as much more than the players and the writers. He really embraced the fans as part of that work-a-day community. He used to go back to his hotel on Central Park South when he managed both the Yankees and the Mets, and instead of going upstairs, he'd unwind by walking all around the the full block down to 6th Avenue and back up 58th Street uh, and stop and talk to the fans all along the way. He was always recognized, which he loved, and he'd recount the game and replay the game with the fans in the streets. He would even do that at airports at the baggage claim. He loved being recognized, and he loved just talking baseball with the fans. He thought they were really as much a part of the game as the players were.
2: Now, one thing about your book, it's it's worth the price of the book, is just to read Casey Stengel's testimony before Congress.
6: (laughs) Well, we didn't mention Stengelese, which is the language that he spoke all onto himself. It was essentially double talk without any punctuation in it, just long run-on sentences. And he would use it to avoid an answer or to stall for time until he thought of an answer. And he used it in Congress when in 1958 he testified before a Senate committee looking into baseball's antitrust exemption. They asked him one question and he proceeded to tell his life story over the next 20 minutes without a pause for a period or a comma so he had all the senators laughing and when mickey mantle followed him mickey just said well i agree with everything casey just said
2: (laughs) all right so the name of the book casey stengel baseball's greatest character by marty appell thank you very much for telling your story on the show okay you know i I enjoyed that interview you know casey stengel you know even in my own family it was a little bit of a debate You know, some some family members said, hey, Casey Stengel, anybody could have managed those Yankees teams to a pennant. Other people say, hey, wait a minute, the Yankees weren't in the World Series every year before Casey Stengel. And I I read something somewhere that Bill James had said that maybe the Yankees won six more games over his time period than they would have won uh, otherwise by an average manager. At the same time, I think one of the problems with that, one of the problems with Bill James is ballplayers are not computer chips. You don't put them in, and it's not like they're a 287 hitter with a 325 on-base percentage.
3: It's emotional.
2: They're human beings. They may not be a 287 hitter with a 325 on-base percentage if the the manager doesn't motivate them properly. Absolutely. And I think that's lost in a lot of these cases. But, you know, he did motivate the players to win five straight World Series, which will probably never happen again, especially with the playoffs and what they have now. And, you know, he was a world – he was a – Good money ball player, you know, as my father used to say. You know, when the World Series came around, he he was up there. He meant business, and he could get the job done. So Casey Stengel, Life in Baseball. And I'm glad there's a book at him because if, if those people, you know, don't know who Casey Stengel is, they should start to learn. Now, if you're talking about history, change in the history of the Civil War, we're going to have John Strausberg at the Civil War Roundtable on May 10th. And doors are going to open at three at the Three West Club, Three West Fifty First Street, at five thirty. It's a cash bar. You get a three course dinner if you're not a member for sixty dollars. And I go to the New York Historical Society all the time, and I have a good time there. But your price of admission there, which is slightly less, you don't get a three course meal, and you don't get the opportunity to speak to the to the guest host. I mean, last night when Ed Bars was there, um, I don't know. He we probably stayed an hour past the. My uh,
3: goodness, yes, he spoke to everybody. He signed books, and bless his heart, he's deaf. So someone would come over, and he'd say, "What's your name?" And then they'd have to get right in his ear and then spell it. Now he he was a sweetheart. Now he stayed the night with us, and we had so much fun. If y'all you have to get on our Facebook page to see the picture of. Ed Bars and my husband admiring my husband's
2: okay. scene. But the Fletcher Pratt Award winner, John Strasberg, 3 West Club. If you want reservations, give a call. 718-341-9811. By May 3rd, David Kincaid is wrapping us up tonight. Thank, thank you for listening.
3: Facebook. this
0: all the Facebook
1: we are gathered here on hallowed ground voices raised
0: heads bowed down we're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this all the way we are gathered here on hallowed ground voices raised heads bowed down we're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this whole the